Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. You can find this reading on page 790 in the Pew Bible. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman, who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, For she said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away. For the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. The report of this spread throughout the district. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When McGray gave me the title of Jesus Heals. I thought about it initially globally, nationally, and then locally. I'm a child of conflict. I experienced a 30-year civil war in the northern part of Ireland. Very small population, 1.5 million people. And over those 30 years of our civil war, we saw 47,000 injuries. 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 16,000 bombings, 30,000 political prisoners, and almost 4,000 dead, in a population of 1.5 million people. If I was to move those statistics into the United States, it would have been 800,000 dead and 6.4 million political prisoners. I often look at the phrase Jesus heals and at times I'm somewhat impatient because I still live in a very deeply segregated, divided society not unlike the United States in many ways. 90% of people still live in segregated areas. 93% are still educated separately. I often ask Jesus, when is the healing coming? I'm doing some work at the moment with both the British, the Irish, and the American administrations around the power of dealing with the past and the power of memory. And I'm trying to ensure as a religious leader that it's absolutely crucial that theology begins to shape the public square in the United States, in Europe, and globally. How do we deal with memory? Because memory in a theological religious tradition is so important. Within the Jewish tradition, that wonderful question you're asked at Passover, why is this night different than any other night? 
And in our own tradition, in the Eucharist, our Holy Communion, this do in remembrance of me. So memory is so important. An American journalist was in the Balkans during the war there in the early 1990s. And he was in a room with a group of Serbs, and as he left the room, a person came running out after him and literally shoves into his hand a piece of paper. And the journalist goes outside and opens it and sees a date, 1492. He goes back into the room and he says, what is this? What are you saying to me? And the very strong Serbian accent, he says, you don't know the date 1492, the Battle of Kosovo. You take away the Battle of Kosovo, you take away the soul of the Serb nation. It happened 600 years ago. And the Serbs were able to use their defeat because they lost the Battle of Kosovo to murder 10,000 Bosnian Muslims. The power of memory. Where is Jesus healing globally, nationally and locally? Margaret Sangster, the social worker, tells her colleagues at a conference a story about this little boy in an urban ghetto sitting in the stairs of a tenement in the early part of the 20th century in the United States. And this kid appears little more than a twisted bit of human flesh. The youngster several months earlier had been struck by an automobile. His parents, fresh from the hills of Appalachia, were uncertain how to access medical treatment. And even though it wasn't part of Margaret's caseload, she took it on as a social worker, cut through the chaos of the bureaucratic red tape, raised the funds and set the process of a cure in motion. And two years after the surgery, the child entered her office. To her astonishment, the little boy walked in without crutches. And to demonstrate the completeness of his recovery, the kid does a cartwheel in front of her desk. The two embraced. The youngster left. And Margaret, in talking to the conference, said, This real warm glow filled my entire office. She said, You know, at that moment I said to myself, If I never accomplish anything else in my life, here is one young man to whom I can point, in whom I have made a real difference. At that point, she paused in her presentation. She says, that was all of several years ago. And she said to the audience, where do you think this little boy is today? And obviously the congregation caught up in the emotion, made suggestions, maybe a school teacher, a physician, maybe Margaret like you, a social worker. She took a long pause and with even deeper emotion, she says, no, he's in prison. For one of the foulest crimes, a human being can commit. And then she said this, I was instrumental in teaching him how to walk again, but there was no one to teach him where to walk. I was instrumental in teaching him how to walk again, but there was no one in teaching him where to walk. So I think the story suggests, doesn't it, initially Margaret made a difference in this kid's life? But the question I want to ask is, how do we make a sustainable difference as a church? Your series asking a question about Jesus making a difference. 
Why does Jesus, in the life of this church, in this city, in this nation, make a sustainable difference? When McGray sent me the text for today, I said to myself quite categorically, I wasn't even going to attempt to try to provide a multiplicity of simple answers, but leave you primarily, I hope, with some deep probing questions. And as I read the text, that little phrase, your faith has healed you, kept coming back. And so I asked the question, what heals me, what makes me whole as a human being? But then I asked another question. If my faith does not heal me, does my faith still save me? So if I am not healed and my child does not rise from the dead, at least not yet. Does Jesus make a difference? And can my faith still be whole? In the last 10 days before coming here, uh, I hosted in Belfast for the Israelis and Palestinians. In the midst of the chaos of the Middle East. They're going through a program at Harvard on negotiation and I'm their sort of Irish advisor on that academic board. And I expose them during that time to what we call people who are victims of our conflict. And I remember in late October 1993, getting a phone call to my parsonage and going to the site of a bombing literally about one mile from my church. And in that bombing, nine innocent people died, one terrorist died in the bombing, and one terrorist was injured. I remember going down to a hospital and holding in my arms a 29-year-old man whose wedding I'd co-officiated at several years earlier. His wife Sharon, also 29, had died in that bombing. And her father, who was a, a gospel singer. The bomb was placed in their fish shop on the Shankill Road. I remember that evening at 8.30 being in a hospital in Belfast, the Royal Victoria Hospital. And I'll be honest with you today, I am not a totally healed person. I probably still suffer from some form of secondary trauma. So I'm not presenting myself today as something of the front cover of men's health, which all you Americans immensely seem to love for some unknown reason. But I can still close my eyes. And I can tell you exactly the color of the suit. I had on that day. I'm unsure what shirt I wore here yesterday when I flew with Erlingus into Orlando. But I can tell you the color of the suit, the color of my clerical collar, and the color of the paint on that hospital corridor. As I stood with a 38-year-old person's family called Wilma McKee, who had been given the all-clear for cancer on the Friday and was caught up on that bomb on the Saturday, and the consultant said to me she'd be dead in five hours. So I step into the corridor, her husband, her two kids, two boys, 14 and 12, and her mom and her dad. Jesus heals. Life is so incredibly complex. I've learned after 30 years of conflict that life does not have any simplistic answers. Often at funeral services, I often used John 13 and verse 7. And if you remember, it's that foot-washing passage. 
seems a strange passage to use a funeral service. But if you remember the story, Peter, who's a, a big mouth and impetuous, and Jesus comes to wash his feet, and he refuses. And then Peter listens to Jesus as he says the words, What I am doing now, you don't understand. But one day, you will. That's where I live my life. I'm being honest as a religious leader. I live my life in the not understanding. I try to trust God in the dark, in the chaos, and in the mystery of life. Tony Campolo, the American sociologist, has been with me several times in Belfast. I've spoken at my previous church on two occasions. And Campolo tells when he was at university, this, this young man, comes to him and he says, and every pastor or person, I guess, in the church has heard this phrase, I'm turning my back on Christianity. I've had enough. He says, I've no time for Christians. As far as I'm concerned, they're a bunch of phonies. And I assume that as he viewed them, Christians did not live consistent lives. Their everyday behavior did not measure up to their convictions. Remember the philosopher Nietzsche in his phraseology that uh, you Christians would need to look a lot more redeemed before I believe in you. And Nietzsche as a philosopher was a major influence on in Nazism in particular on Hitler. So there's something about that in this boy's story. But as Campolo probed deeper, he said to him, tell me your story. He said, yeah, there's some in my life about that cynicism, but my judgment goes much deeper. So he tells the story of his little sister who was diagnosed with cancer. He said he spent months watching her little body wither in excruciating pain. And in the midst of the ordeal, he asked the question that all of us ask. And we're encouraged to ask the question, why? And he finally got no answers. He said, I can live with the silence of God. He said, but what I can't live with, he said, was the pretenses of Christians in my church in the face of this tragedy. He says those in my church and especially those in my immediate family said they had no sorrow because they knew that little sister had gone to be with Jesus. He says they smiled those plastic smiles that are often put on by Christians on such occasions. And they told each other, we know joy no matter what has happened. The night following the funeral of his little sister, this young man went into his church to think and to pray. And he sat up in the balcony of the darkened church and after he'd been there for several hours, his father, who was the pastor of the church, came in. On a word that his son was watching him, the pastor walked slowly to the altar and began to cry. And the crying turned into uncontrollable wailing and sobbing. And silently, I mean, visualize that, the young man watching his dad, who was the pastor of the church, pour out his soul in sorrow. And then suddenly the father stopped crying. Looking at the painting of Christ, just above the altar, shook his fist at it and screamed, Damn you! And when the boy returned home later that evening, he found his father, as the pastor, again being forced to wear that false 
artificial smile and pretending that he had no agony or disappointment with God. And that did it for the young man. He said, I don't want to be part of a religion that leads people to pretend they had no heartbreak when they really did. I want nothing to do with a church that made him feel guilty for his heavy heart. I was teasing the worship band in the first service and there's nothing wrong with the phrase worship band. But I do ask the question, why do our churches not have lament bands? Why have we lost the ritual in Christendom of lament? Because a third of our psalms, if this uh, deep brooding tone, mean read the book of Lamentations. And one of the things in my conversations with both the British and the Irish and the American administration is asking those questions about acknowledging pain of a 30-year conflict, looking at the context of what caused this and bringing meaningful theology into the public space to deal with this. We have the resources. But as you and I know in so many ways, the church in the West has what I call this kind of fortress door mentality where we never spill out into the public space to bring healing and to make a difference. In Jewish theology it said quite clearly, if you don't get angry with God, there is something wrong with your faith. I think we need to recover that concept once again. Because I've learned in my life that life for me has been learned in Auschwitz, in Dhaka. In shanty towns I visited in Brazil, in townships in South Africa, in cancer wards. Both my wife Joyce and I, we enjoy the, the gym, but... Despite the fact I enjoy physical fitness, I would never show the same interest in the philosophy of some unbearably healthy, tanned person. In fact, as my wife tells me, one of our marital tensions in our life is, she says, you're awful unsociable, Gary, when you go to the gym. I try to avoid eye contact. Because to me, life is more than a sexy tan body and how I just love my new car or my new lover, etc., etc. I've had some suffering in my life. But on the scale of human suffering, not a lot so far. The piercing cry of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even with Luther, the Protestant theologian, still intrigues me the most. There's a DVD entitled God and Trial, and if you can get over the language in it, which is pretty rough, it goes into a barracks in Auschwitz in a group of Jews, literally, philosophically, and theologically, put God on trial, asking about the pain of the, the Holocaust of the Shoah. Why again did God not heal? So I ask the question in your series, if Jesus makes a difference in the moment, because remember, this was just a very small glance that this lady read to us in the scriptures. The healing that took place over maybe what? Twelve hours? So I'm going to ask the question, how does Jesus heal or make a difference in a lifetime? Let me quote from a first century rabbi, Rabbi Elvaka. And he tells the story as he was shepherding his flocks. He noticed this tiny stream trickling down a hillside 
dropping over a ledge on its way to the river below. And below him was this massive boulder, and in this boulder was this deep regression and impression. And he noted that the drip, drip, drip of water over the centuries literally had hollowed away the stone. And the rabbi comments, if mere water can do this to this hard rock, how much more can God's word carve away into my heart of flesh? And he realized quite profoundly, if a massive torrent had have gone over that rock, the rock would have been unchanged. It was a slow but steady impact of each small droplet year after year that completely reformed the stone. And one Christian theologian commenting on that story said this. You know, when I first started studying the Hebrew Bible, I wanted one commentary that would teach me everything. I wanted one class that would simply explain it all. If I could learn all the right answers in one profound marathon event, all the better. But then she said, I find now that God likes to reveal truth over many years. As I study alongside others, I realize now that the big splashes aren't usually God's way of doing things. The slow drip of study, prayer, Day after day, year after year, he shapes us into what he wants us to be. So here's my question about this text, which I don't think is that easy, to be honest. How was this dead girl who was brought to life, the sick woman healed, how were they shaped and refined over a lifetime? I think that's the bigger question today. You see, we all want Jesus to make a difference. We want it today. I mean, after all, this is instantaneous America. It's all got to happen now at once. We want luxurious solutions. We don't want the slow trickle of daily life. And when McGray sent me that text, I, I flipped into the previous chapter to try to contextualize these healing stories. Because there we find another healing story. And it's Peter's mother-in-law, it's a fever. It's highly probable, I think, that Peter also witnessed the two healings that we're looking at this morning. So in these passages, can we deduct it? Jesus make a difference in Peter's life? And I thought of that passage in Luke 22, verse 31 and following. If you know the story, it's the temptation of Peter by Satan. So the prince of this world, he's plotting, he's scheming. And you can be absolutely sure Peter asked that question, why God, what good can this accomplish? But it's interesting they're looking at Jesus' words. Jesus didn't try to explain the torment to Peter. I probably know if you came to me today and asked me questions about suffering the riddle of life, I'd probably like want to be some smart ass to give you all these semi-theological, philosophical answers as pastors try to do. But Jesus didn't. He didn't even attempt to explain the suffering and the torment to Peter. 
He knew it would come. He didn't try to fit all the pieces of the jigsaw together as we are prone to do in the church. What did he do? He prayed. But he didn't pray the way I pray. Because I guess if this couple came to me today and you said to me, can you pray for this certain aspect of my life? I would probably pray that your suffering wouldn't be long, it would be okay, and you would get an instantaneous healing. But Jesus didn't do that. I've often asked myself, what way did he pray? So Jesus didn't pray that Peter would be spurred from the trial. The trial would be a pleasant one or a short one. The things I always seem to pray for. We pray that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. A lot more important, isn't it? That when Peter was stretched to the limit and pushed to the brink, that his faith would not unravel. He prayed Peter's faith would come out on the other side whole and he would use that experience to fit his life back together. And he uses that little phrase, when this is all over, strengthen your sisters and your brothers. And I often think of that passage there in John's Gospel. After Peter does a runner and does the desertion, even though he was relatively boastful, Lord, I'm with you to death. You can count on me. I'm the tough man, Peter, the man, the rock, the person of great faith. There was a scuffle in Gethsemane, the denial of Jesus before the servant girl. A rooster crowing, Jesus' words remembered, the sound of hammered nails on Golgotha, heard from a distance. And I think when Peter and Jesus met on that beach, and he used that little phrase, Peter, feed my sheep, I think probably what Peter heard was, you know, Peter, despite your mess, despite your chaos, I love you. And I'm trusting you with my most important work. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to build my church. Can you imagine how freeing that must have been for people like us who live in the Western world who assume Jesus is fixated on perfect performance? You've messed up. You got it wrong. But in reality, I still want you to feed my sheep and build my church. And you know the story. He led the Jerusalem church. He preached fearlessly. He rode, he traveled, he became a pillar of strength even in times of persecution. So what about the long haul? Mark Batterson once said this. Some of the best things in life are totally unplanned and unscripted. And he said this. I'm not a movie critic, but in my humble entertainment estimation, the greatest movies have the highest levels of uncertainty. Whether the uncertainty is romantic or dramatic, scripts with the highest levels of uncertainty make the best movies. And then he says this in the same vein. I think high levels of uncertainty make the best lies. So he says this. So I'm not going to promise you today instantaneous healing. I can't. I think the reason why we call healings a miracle is because they don't happen a lot. They're miracles. But he said this. Embrace 
relational uncertainty, it's called romance. Embrace spiritual uncertainty, it's called mystery. Embrace occupational uncertainty, it's called destiny. Embrace intellectual uncertainty, it's called revelation. So for these two women that were healed, I don't know how their lives ended. It's simply a very narrow glance into one significant moment in some people's lives. But I do know this, and uh, Greg started with a different psalm this morning, and then we switched to Psalm 91 there. And I often look at that phrase, He will cover you with His wings. I hope for all of us today that I'm hiding onto those wings. I know when planet Earth eventually ends that those wings are going to be bloodied, battered, and broken, and hanging at all the odd angles because we have been hiding under those. But I do know this, that those wings will never fall to God's side. They will always be there, bruised, battered, and broken, sheltering you and sheltering me in the uncertainties of life. And I think Jesus does heal over a lifetime and over eternity. But I can say today if you touch your TV screen or send me $10 and you will be healed. <laughs> I can't promise you that today. But I can promise you this with the psalmist. That those bruised, battered and broken wings, they're going to be there. I promise you this. I promise you this. 